I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Tell Me The Score. Today I'm joined by the glorious David Arnold, uh, principally known as a great film composer, but also a wonderful songwriter and guitarist. Uh, I've been lucky enough to work with David on lots of projects, going right back to Casino Royale, and recently things like Dracula, Sherlock, Inside Man and Good Omens. I think we're about to start recording the second series of Good Omens. The thing that that amuses me most about this interview is that I do an endless amount of preparation for these things. Charts of projects someone's worked on and who they've worked with and where their paths might have crossed elsewhere and all kinds of stuff like that. Pages of backup questions, some really left-field questions at the end. And within about 20 seconds, it just goes completely out of the window. I actually ended up with about three and a half hours talking to David, which I've condensed down into two roughly one-hour episodes. It's brilliant to listen to. David is kind and thoughtful and fascinating at all times, and I hope you enjoy listening to this. So, look, David, thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Even though I've been here for a while, and we've talked quite a long time already. It's a shame we didn't record it. Well, I've recorded some of it. Oh. <laughs> um, it's a shame we didn't talk about anything. No, we haven't slagged anyone That's off yet. <laughs> Give us time. <laughs> I thought it would be really good uh, for people to hear a little bit just about the, your very earliest musical experiences. Was, did you grow up in a, in a household where there was music? Yeah, and I completely forgot how important that was until fairly recently... Uh, where I've since subsequently discovered that actually having music on in the house when you have children especially is essential if you you know if you want to get them interested in music without telling them what they should be listening to or saying what's good or bad just having stuff on and then catching your children occasionally singing a bit of Nina Simone or or Roy Orbison or uh, Ella Fitzgerald as well as uh, you know the Sex Pistols or the Ramones or you know, chic. Uh, what would have been on in your house? Um, well, sadly, this was in the 60s. Um, and uh, so there was this kind of explosion of British music where everything changed. And it all seems quite, it all seems quite exciting now. But at the time, uh, there was only, obviously, there were only two uh, television channels. Um, and radio was like Radio 1 or Radio 2. Uh, and in our house it was always Radio 2 and Radio 2 in the 60s were largely playing music from the 50s uh, and some of the 60s so you'd hear a lot of what you would call the Great American Songbook or classic songwriting Um, so that was always on in terms of records uh, my dad and my mum had varying degrees uh, some classical music most of them were the greatest hits kind of classical music thing. Um, when I say the greatest hits, not compilations, but, mm. you know, Mozart, Clarinet, Concerto, Beethoven's Fifth, 1812, you know, like the big, the, the greatest hits. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, uh, soundtracks of um, musicals, like the old MGM musicals, mm-hmm. like Cabaret and South Pacific and Carousel, as well as then... 
Jack Jones, Victor Moan, Vince Hill. My dad was a singer. He was a boxer first, and then he was a singer. So you know, your 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 crooner um, uh, library was quite well established. Perry Como, um, uh, yeah, Jack Jones, um, um, so many of those singing classic songs and brilliant arrangements of classic songs. Uh, and then Mum had a couple of Beatles albums, and there were some soundtracks. There was Oliver and the Jungle Book. Um, some film things as well um, so those were the ones that you could put on by choice because obviously there are records um, but there was always a radio on I mean my dad would wake us up in the morning by putting the radio at the bottom of the stairs and turning it on loud so we were woken up with music um, Was that a nice way to wake up? I, I guess it depends um, on the song but... Yeah, the thing is, what was interesting is that you weren't really ever questioning what it was you were listening to you were just aware that there was music all the time uh, and gradually, over a few years, you got to know them. So even though we were listening to Radio 2 at breakfast time, then the breakfast show uh, was was veered more towards sort of pop music or gentler side of pop music. And then as the day went on, we came home from school for school dinners. Um, didn't have school dinners. We had dinners at home. When we got home, the lunchtime show, which I think was Sam Costa, um, he would play slightly more, you know, slightly gentler, slightly older in the evening, you would have the odd kind of classical thing and things like sing something simple uh, yeah. uh, and, you know, sort of close harmony, very gentle, very relaxed, seeing you through the evening kind of music, you know, with the kind of presenters who would be so close to the mic, they would barely need to make a sound, right. you know, so you really felt they were in your ear. How lovely. And um, so everyone had music on all the time and and it just seeps in you know and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's one of the reasons why i feel sort of comfortable doing film music is one of the reasons is that if you have experience and knowledge of all these different types of music and the language that's used and the techniques that are used but the sensibility more than anything you know the really important part is the sensibility of it if you know what that is at the the core of it you know what makes these things work the way that they work um then drawing upon that to kind of have different sort of tonal colors or or approaches to to, to music that you write uh is very i mean a direct example of that is um the tiger who came to tea the animation film i did mm. last year um is is in a way directly related to those um Five o'clock to seven o'clock radio two, Burt Camphor, Ted Heath, Glenn Miller kind of records that used to go on, you know, the 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 smallish big band, um and uh and the joyfulness of that, you know, the freedom of that sort of swinging big band thing, which I've never done in my life. But when they talked to me about doing that film and said we want something jazzy, I was like, I can't do jazz. I'm not a jazz person. It's a very specific very specific set of skills uh and uh it certainly wasn't in my wheelhouse um but upon talking to them you realize that when they said jazzy they didn't mean jazz they just in a way meant the freedom of it wow. uh uh and i started thinking about burt Campfort's, you know the swinging safari and all that kind of stuff which had a kind of joyfulness which i've never really heard in any other sort of music joy is very difficult to get into music and i think very few people can do it i think mournfulness is easy anger is easy sadness is easy but joy 
it's quite rare to have it represented in music, I think. And Why is that? Do you think maybe that people... People who write music are miserable. <laughs> well, I suppose when you're miserable, you feel like you've got something you need to get off your chest. Yeah. Whereas when you're joyful, you're just happy. Yeah. Why am I writing music if I feel happy? Yeah. I mean, not that you only write music when you feel sad, but I think most composers or most songwriters, you think like, well, when's the time you feel most emotional? It's when bad things happen. Yes. Um, and when, when, when good things happen you learn as you get older that you've got to work quite hard to be aware that they're happening, you know, and you've got to be very aware that this is happening right now and I should pay attention to this because they're quite fleeting, genuine, mm -hmm. happy moments, you yes. know, and so you need to be able to sort of catch hold of them and be aware that I'm here and this is happening and this is a good thing. Um, anyway, that's a very long answer to... Um, what sort of music did you listen to well, when you were growing up? Say, so you were listening to, there was music on a lot, and, yeah. but were there instruments lying around that you could just pick up and fiddle about with? Um, there weren't. Um, I'm guessing well, you I, first I, picked up a guitar. Is that yeah, I tell, I tell a lie that there weren't. There weren't for, there wasn't for a long time. Um, I think when I was seven or eight, my mum sent my dad into Luton where we lived to buy himself a suit because he didn't have a suit. Uh, and he came back with a guitar instead of a suit, and it was a Hofner, um, I can't remember the model number, but it was a red one. He couldn't play. Right. He was singing a lot in pubs and clubs, uh, and so he had a suitcase full of sheet music with all the you know classic songs. That's where I sort of learned to read, really. Um, started off, because I knew all the songs, because they were on the radio all the time, uh, and he had the original sheet music, and in those days um, they would have... Um, banjo and mandolin chords written on the top rather than you know guitar vamping stuff um so i bought chord books and transcribed the the chords so they were guitar chords and i could see whether i started picking up the guitar and messing about with it um and it sat in the corner for a long time before that happened um and then we started watching top of the pops and i i realized that there was it sort of became a bit like the sword in the stone you know there were people on top of the pops who had an electric guitar and it appeared to be magic you know it appeared to be something that had a, a mythical powers the way that people played it people's response to it the way it was held the way it was thrust at you the way it was moved around the noise that it made um uh, and there was one in the corner of our house and i thought this is quite an exciting prospect because no one else had one and I remember bringing it into school uh, I think when I was eight and the adulation that the guitar got I couldn't really play it mm. um, but it was an electric guitar it's a very rare thing uh, and so I just started learning all the time uh, almost every day just trying to learn songs um, playing it and literally it was the old cliche till my fingers bled because yeah. uh, it was a steel strung guitar and it was very difficult to hold chord shapes down without it sort of cutting into your fingertips so it was sort of painful and you were teaching um, yourself I was teaching myself yeah and listening a lot you know I was doing a lot of listening um, so that was the that was the instrument that was around you know you, you, you kind of have recorders and stuff um, because everyone plays a recorder when you're young and everyone does London's Burning mm -hmm. uh, and then went to secondary school and everyone said what do you play I said well I play the recorder well you can play the clarinet because it's basically the same you know you're blowing in one end moving your fingers around um, 
so my mum and dad bought me a clarinet and then I had to practice that all the time uh, so I learnt that more formally uh, but I couldn't improvise with it. I couldn't find a voice with it. It was, it's something that I speak to with, I suppose, if there is such a thing as principally classical musicians, um, uh, if you were to put a piece of music in front of classical players that had improvised on it, I'm not sure what would happen. Well, I sort of have got an idea what would happen because I've seen it and it's, you know, sometimes it's all right and sometimes yeah. it's not. Depends who you get. Exactly. Um, but the idea that I can interpret rather than create is a is a, you know it's, it's quite a chasm I think, yeah. uh, and um, I always felt like with a clarinet if it was on if it was written down I could play it if it wasn't for some reason I couldn't translate what I had in my head to my fingers and make it sound any good. Very formal sounding instrument unless you really get on top of it. Yes. I think a clarinet, um, and I oddly then never really wrote for it you know i think i wrote for it twice in my entire life uh and that's when i wanted something sort of cold and detached and uh well it sounded like that to me uh so i sort of avoided it in a lot of ways um uh and uh so you know formal formally educated in that but not beyond you know sort of grade seven i think and, and you you said your dad was singing in pubs i guess having Having been a boxer was probably quite handy for, for managing that. Well, you know, you, you wouldn't know. have to worry if anything kicked yeah. off. But it was interesting because he was very, very friendly. Uh, and it's interesting because he died quite young. He was 64. And at his funeral, uh, there are loads of people there that I'd never met right. who said about how lovely he was. And that's one of the greatest things you can achieve yeah. as a human being, I think, if your legacy is that a bunch of strangers can tell your kids that, you know, that your dad was... A wonderful person it's like that's i think one of the only things worth worrying about um trying to be that sort of person uh but he was very friendly and very well liked and also he was a brilliant he was a brilliant singer in that genre of uh you know uh jack jones uh you know a sort of gentler sort of tom jones i suppose um vic damone you know kind of thing if anyone remembers those people um, and so he was friendly, people liked him, and w this was in an era where people playing and singing in pubs was not uh, A, an obstacle course, or B, uh, a prelude to violence. You yeah. know, it was like people went there because they wanted to hear songs, yes. and it was a slightly older crowd. Um, sometimes it was in working men's clubs, sometimes it was in the... You know, in Luton, there's a lot of manufacturing and Vauxhall had their own social club and Skefco had their own social club and Electrolux had their own social yeah. club. And he used to sing there. So about, you know, every week we'd go out and if I'd learnt a new tune on the clarinet, he'd tell everyone to shut up and I'd get up on the stage and play it. So I became used to performing in a way in public. But you were happy doing that because a lot of kids would have just been terrified of that. Um, I didn't feel like I had any choice. Right. It's one of those. It's one of those odd things. That, like the conditions of learning an instrument um, uh, is that because because we didn't really have much money, um, actually investing in an instrument was a huge yes. deal for them, and it was made sort of very clear, not in a sit down and this is what you're going to do kind of way, but in a slightly sort of guilt shaming sort of way. You you know you said you were going to play this, and we've had to do all this to get you this yeah. instrument so you're going to have to practice every day 
and so it meant that you didn't do other things you know you didn't go out and play as much you know you never went out with your friends as much um you 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 had to practice you know you had to be i, I do think it's sort of a, some kind of a bond a contract between a parent and a child is you you do need something to to keep them practicing otherwise it's very difficult to yeah it's tricky isn't it because because if it's all you've got then there is that clinging on to this as this might be you know the ticket out of yeah anything you know something unusual or something fulfilling um but also the risk is this is a business that we have no idea how it works you know my dad worked in a factory my mum didn't work um and so our family you know didn't go to university uh, there was no sort of history of further education uh, beyond a levels really um uh so the expectation was you would finish at school and then you go and get a job and most of the jobs were sort of you know more physical uh than they were uh mental work so the idea of the music industry or any sort of job in the arts because i thought i was going to be an artist first like drawing or painting or sculpting all things that i kind of toyed with all the same basically the same idea in a different format um it felt like that we got no idea where this is going. You know, it's like, why are you doing this? How's that going to get you a job? You know, it's like, how are you going to work? How are you going to do this? And I didn't know the answer and they didn't know the answer. So there was this, you know, there is a definite, um, uh, uh, you know, high wire act really of, of not being sure which side, A, if you could stay on and B, if you fell off, what would happen? Um, but they were shouting at me, to stay on regardless uh and if i said well i want to get off for a bit they go like you can't because you said you were going to do this so you have to do right. it so was that you become quite dutiful in a way and sometimes you you know I, I i think to a certain extent it's you know there are obviously um uh repercussions of that you know mentally uh you know when you have to put when you put everything first and your own enjoyment of anything second, that has other repercussions. But does later, that stay you know? with you? Do you think that? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. I think, uh, I, you know, if someone says, I want you to do it, then I'll do it. And if someone says, I need you to do it by next week, then everything else stops and I do it. Uh, and, you know, you very rarely put yourself first. You know, I learned, I learned a great lesson off of Peter Gabriel actually in the Olympics. The London Olympics when I was wor working on a piece um, that never came to fruition but I had an idea with Peter to do something that he was quite enthusiastic about at the start and we were talking about it for a while and um, we were about to sort of start actually doing it uh, and he phoned me he was in Portugal I think he was driving around Portugal on holiday with his uh, with his family uh, and, and he said, David, I've, de I've decided to put life first. Uh, and it's an argument that you can't counter <laughs> no. because it's one of the most important things you can do if you're in a position to do it. Uh, and we ended up not doing that, but I found that to be a very enlightening moment mm. because I think you do have to put life first frequently if you can if you're in the position you can do it it's always tempting not to because it's such a long haul up to the point where you get to that point in your life where i suppose where you could say that you are successful in some way um that to kind of abandon it seems 
seems odd. Um, but there's also great power in saying no to things. You know, it's amazing. Yes. It's amazing how much you are, you, you feel compelled to say yes to everything because you want to be the good person. You know, you want to be the person who's not the problem. You are the, the son who practices, you know, um, and there is an odd parental pleasing aspect to working in a group or with someone else, you know, in a, in a film, it's a collaborative thing. And at the head of it, you've got your director and producer who are the parent figures effectively. And you do want to please them, you know, um, uh, and when they aren't happy with something, you feel it and you want to make it better. But it's extraordinary when at some point you say, do you know what? Actually, no, I don't think that's right. And I'm not going to do it like that. You have to save those moments. You know, you have to be really sure that it is the right thing to do. It just reminds me, it's like, you know, when you're a kid or something, and you say, actually, do you know what? I'm not going to practice tonight. I'm going to go out and do something else. There is a moment where it's like that, that that's the end of that little chapter, mm. you know, where you would do everything that you were told. And now you were taking some of the responsibility on yourself and hoping that they'd be happy with with what goes on. Not that different, I think, with, with writing for film. And, and when did you start feeling that you wanted a, a ticket out of that world um, into I, something new? I, I always... I wouldn't say odd ideas, but I think I was... I always had different ways of looking at things than were officially presented to me. So... If anyone told me a story in school from a very early stage, I would think of other ways of telling it, or I would ask things about it. Why is it like that? Why does she have to be like that? What if they didn't do that? What if they went over there and, and this happened? Uh, and in music class, whenever we were doing the simplest things, like learning London's Burning, um, I would always get extremely irritated if people were didn't have an idea of tempo you know or pitch like all of a sudden i couldn't figure it out that you couldn't understand where to come in it seemed like the most obvious thing in the world where you come in instinctively it's like well of course it's london's burning london's burning fetching burning you know of course it is but someone else comes in half a bit late and is in a different time and different you know, why can't you hear that it's like drives me mad in fact one little guy when i was six his name was michael piper um he uh, he was cast as one of the kings in the um, in the in the school uh, play at Christmas. Uh, had to walk up the centre of the uh, of the hall, you know, with a present for the baby Jesus. Uh, and there was a piece of piano music playing, and the teacher asked him to walk in time with it, and he never did. He just kept he walked like really really fast every time, and it was driving me mad to the point where I actually went down and said no like this, and walked up in time to it. I couldn't understand why people couldn't hear things that I could hear or feel, you know, rhythm or pitch. And so when we were learning things like London's Burning, I would always hear other harmonic ideas or alternative melody things that could go alongside the music that I already knew. So I knew London's Burning, but there is another line, like a, mm. you know, a Descant line or something that I would hear it. Um, and so that was kind of like the discovery of oh you can create things you know you can think of things that aren't that weren't there originally i've got an interesting point to make about that which is to do with how your brain works um a couple of years ago um 
I had uh, an agency call me about would I work with uh, Professor Sophie Scott, who is a sort of a brain expert. Uh, and her expertise is how the brain reacts to like comedy, language, music. Mm. Um, I said, what it is, it's like it's an MRI. You're in an MRI for 90 minutes and you're going to give us a list of music that you like. We're going to pre present you with music that you like, music that we think you'll hate based on what you like. Right. And we're going to show you some words. When the words come up on the screen, it's all plastic and mirrors because obviously no metal in a, in, a, in one of those things. Um, if it's a red word, I want you to just think about the word. Nothing to do with anything. Just think about the word. If it's a word is in green, I want you to, in your mind, write a piece of music inspired by that word. It might be rainbow or riverside or mountain. Um, but if it was a red mountain, nothing. Green mountain, music. So we did this for 90 minutes, listened to music that I liked, music that I didn't care about, and these words came up. Um, anyway, so we came out of it at the end, um, and a couple of interesting things were present. Uh, one was that my primary audio cortex, which if you were looking at it in terms of your brain, if you make a little crink in your index finger, your knuckle is about the size of your audio cortex. That's about it in your brain. It's like a little P-shaped lump. Uh, anyway, the one in my brain is about four times bigger than normal. Now, we don't know, I don't know, and they didn't know whether or not your capacity for dealing with things that are primarily audio-based are a result of having a larger processing unit or whether or not it's got bigger as a result of having to do it. So we don't know, but they just found it was bigger. And so the other really interesting thing was... Um, that when you listen to music, that your every part of your brain is is triggered and is firing off, uh, and which is why when you see dementia, uh, dementia, um, uh, pass, uh, uh, people who suffer from dementia um, are played a piece of music, all of a sudden they become awake and they become lucid and they can remember things that they never, you know, they've forgotten for years. And, you know, people who play music who have dementia uh, may not be able to uh, recall anything, but all of a sudden they're playing an entire piano piece. Um, every part of your brain is on fire when you hear music. And they don't know why that is, but it is. And it's the only thing that does that. But in the compositional part, so that's when you're listening to music. So it's everything to do with 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 memory, with body temperature, with breath, uh, with with heart rate, uh, um, the physicality of it, what you feel like to move in tempo to it or tap your feet. It's like the physical part of your brain control. Everything responds to music. Um, but what was really interesting in the compositional part was that every part of your brain is engaged in the compositional process apart from memory. So when you are creating something new, the part of your brain that relies on things that you've already known or experienced doesn't come into it. The pure moment of creation has nothing to do with memory, which I thought was amazing. I mean, you can apply a certain, uh, 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 I suppose, uh, a, a memory or a sense of memory or of knowing what things felt like after the event, you know, to kind of make it 
either sadder or happier or faster more exciting you know you then start recalling things like to, to apply an experience to it a bit like a template but at the point of like bang there it is there's the idea memory isn't involved which i thought was an extraordinary thing to discover but in a way it makes a lot of sense when you hear keith richards talking about i don't write these songs i just have my aerials up you know it's like they're floating around and i just happen to be able to grab one or two out of the hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. And now, now that you've actually had that experience of seeing it in data, what's going on in your brain, do you, do you then second guess... Does that, does that enter into the process at all, ever? Now, are you thinking where it's coming from? No. The, the, the problem, when I say it's a problem, the experience is always the same for me. The experience is I'm very flattered to be asked to do anything, but I obviously can't do it, and I'm going to fail, and it's going to be awful, right. and, I, and I'm, I'm actually not good enough, and I can't think of anything. That's because I know... It's like someone asking you to climb Everest. You know, In your head you're on top of Everest and you stuck the flag in and you're taking the photograph yeah. of you standing next to the flag on top of Everest. You're not thinking about the months of experience that you're going to need to be able to get from base camp up to Everest and whether you're going to do it or not. Do you want to climb Everest? Yeah, because in my mind, I'm already on the top with the flag. I don't want to know how to get there because that's going to be horrible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, would you like to fight Mike Tyson for a million quid? Yeah, but I don't want to spend eight years training, you know. Um, but, yeah. Uh... With, with that in mind, early on, I don't know how much picture you'd written to before you did Young Americans. Was That the, that was the first long-form yeah. thing you'd done. That was the first feature film. And and you were, you were mates with Danny Cannon before that. Yeah, yeah. So we'd had a few years of doing um, homemade films to start off with. And I, in the very early days... Uh, I think Danny was 16, I think, when I met him, and I think I was 19 or 20. Uh, he wanted to be a film director. I wanted to be a film composer at that point. Having been through, I'd like to be an actor, I want to be a musician, I want to be in a band, I want to be an artist, I want to be a, a theatre designer, uh, I want to be a, um, a, a sculptor. Um, I want to do film music. I loved, A, I love music. B, I played clarinet in, in orchestras and felt the power of being in a group and the noise that that made and felt that incredibly exciting. Uh, and I'd sat in films uh, and been overwhelmed by the combination of picture and music 
and wanted to be a part of the thing that made that noise that made me feel like that i wanted to understand how it worked you know i mean still my favorite programs are things like how it works i love that greg what's his name from master chef you know like greg, oh, yeah, greg, who, greg, wallace. greg wallace who like went around all these factories finding out how crisps right. are made that's my dream job i was so annoyed when he did that because I just want to find out how things work because I enjoy the experience of them and I want to know how they work. That's why I tend to speak to people a lot because I want to see how people work because it's the greatest currency in the world of understanding people, I think. And um, I keep wandering off subject a bit, Tom. But anyway, so 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 we were with... Uh, with uh, so Danny wanted to be a film director. His dad was a props man, uh, worked on the Monty Python films and The Prisoner and he had a little VHS camera which he let Danny use. Uh, and in the early days, we would buy smoke pellets from the joke shop in Luton Arndale Market, uh, and we would get friends together and make little films. Danny was obsessed with uh, the sort of look of those sort of early 80s uh, Ridley Scott movies, so we would set a smoke pellet off. I mean, if we were filming it in my house, right, we'd be in the kitchen and we had a little hatch, a serving hatch in the kitchen, and we'd let a smoke pellet off in the kitchen so the room was full of smoke, and we had one light that we put in the serving hatch which would come through and it would look like, you know, you'd film that in that room and there'd yeah. be this beam of light cutting through like it was a Ridley Scott movie. Uh, and we made films that were as cinematic as possible under the circumstances, and I would do the music for them. And when I say do the music for them, it was a bit like doing it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd see bits of what we were doing and I would um, think of bits of music, jot things down, but no sequences, no computers, no equipment really, you know, didn't have anything. Um, and so I'd write all these things down and I would have to kind of have it prepared in my head. Uh, and our local Catholic church organist, whose name was John Rand, had a, a, a four-track recorder, um, was it an eight track a little fostex eight track uh and he had a, a yamaha dx7 a jupiter 8 uh a digital reverb and a dramatics drum machine he used to let me go around there on a tuesday evening while he was having his tea for an hour uh and i would record the cue as i remembered it in my head uh onto this eight track and we'd mix it down like one track at a time mix it down onto a cassette, take that away, and then we'd take it from the cassette and put it on this little film. And we made the films like that bit I'm by bit. Hoping that it would sync to picture. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the times it wouldn't because it wouldn't be written to picture. You know, I'd be yeah. sort of making notes and roughly timing it, but it was all a bit guesswork. Uh, um, and uh, eventually, when we got to um, got to Young Americans, and we'd done a couple of films where we actually did have sync when Danny was at the film school, National Film and Television School, which I applied to and didn't get into, um, but I carried on doing student films there. Um, so from the point where we met to the point of doing Young Americans was about seven years. Uh, and in that time, we made a lot of little short films together and I made short films with other people who were at the film school. So by the time I did Young Americans, I think I'd done about 17 or 18 short films. Right. It's funny you mentioned the light in the kitchen, that actually the first, the opening sequence in the club of Young Americans, there's quite a lot of overexposed light and, yeah, yeah. and very stylized. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing that we were doing, you know. I mean, um, it was very homemade. Yeah. Um, but you would make it as close to film as you could to the extent that we would have premieres at the at the art centre in Luton where we sort of all gathered Fantastic. together. 
uh, and you know, tick- it was just friends and family came. But we would make little tickets and Danny would draw the posters and we would get little crew T-shirts made with the logos on and all that. And it felt real, you know. And then you'd do another one. Uh, and I think we learnt a lot from that experience um, and those experiences about about storytelling. And I was seeing a lot of films as well at the time. You know, it's really important that you understand the language of film and storytelling because that's the prime uh, reason why f- film music is existing to, to, to help with that process. So um, I think it's much more important than being able to, even being able to sort of write music to a certain extent. And, and um, you collaborated with Bjork on the on the theme song for that. Is that right? Yeah, um, yeah. She lived uh, two streets away, um, and at the time when we were making the Americans, I was sharing a flat with Danny uh, in Belsize Park in Camden, um, and I had one bedroom. He had another bedroom. I was writing on the foot of my bed so i would have a little table at the end of my bed with a very basic setup um and um again i had no sink i was timing it and guessing it well timing isn't quite guessing it but it wasn't electronically sunk to the picture um all these things that i should have been taught but i never went anywhere where they taught because i didn't get in because i wasn't good enough um so i learned how to do all these things on my own um which may be a good or bad thing, I don't know. Uh, but just we, to be clear, you were applying as a composer to, yes. to the film school. Yeah, yeah, and I did a. They they make you write a piece of music uh, for a scene that they send you. They send you a student film, a either a short student film or a scene from a student film. You have to score it. So you have to demo the thing and send in the handwritten score. So basically, I did that. I thought it was pretty good. They obviously didn't. Um, it's like an act of willful I mean I actually put that theme in a Bond film afterwards <laughs> uh, uh, so it can't have been that bad um, but anyway I didn't get in for whatever reason I probably just wasn't really good enough at that point um, in terms of execution uh, but you know I was doing a lot and learning a lot and um, so we're doing the Americans and I'd written the bulk of it uh, and I had this idea for a song and we were talking with Danny about who could sing it and we were thinking like maybe Kate Bush or Liz Fraser from the Cocteau Twins and Björk had just um, uh, finished with Sugar Cubes and I heard was working on her first solo album she'd, re- she'd, she'd released a track with 808 State with like a Manchester kind of electronic music sort of dance band thing uh, and you know, hugely idiosyncratic voice, incredibly a recognisable, identifiable, and otherworldly in a lot of ways. Um, and I'd written a melody for it, and I thought, like, well, I can't get her to do it and tell her to tell her what to sing. You know, it'd be like giving a line reading to Al Pacino or something. It just seemed ridiculous. So I gave her a sort of rough of the track uh, and asked her to come up with she could come up with a like a melody we gave her some ideas for lyrics um but before that literally stuck a note through her door because she was like two streets away uh and said do you want to pop over to our flat because we're two streets away show you a bit of the film and see what we think so she came over uh showed her bits of it played her the rough of this gave her the ideas for some of the words we were thinking of that felt idiosyncratic to the film uh, suggestive of the film uh, uh, as a lyric she said she'd do it and then sort of three days later 
she'd done it and we recorded we recorded the thing um and she came in and sang it like two takes i think it was incredibly quick the whole thing was incredibly quick had a certain sort of energy to it um but the recording the actual orchestral recording on play dead was um was one take it was a read through uh, it was right at the end of the session and we knew we couldn't go over because it was a low budget film we didn't have that much money for music so we had to finish as you know you know on the dot at, at one, one o'clock uh and so we'd recorded the rest of the score wasn't that much like 25 minutes or something of it and so we had this one three minute thing left and it was three minutes too yeah and so we just had to go into record i said like play it play it play it so they played it all the way through there's a certain energy to that when yes. that happens which i think you can hear oh yeah well, i'm a big fan of the first take always yeah you get but so then what, what you also have then is like there's a horn split there's yeah. a there's an oboe mistake you know there's all these things but it had a certain energy to it which was undeniable and i've played it a couple of times since same chart in front of bands with more time and it's you know it's just not really been the same you know and uh so it's one of those little sort of magic in a bottle lightning in a bottle sort of things um so that's how that started yeah i mean it's and, quite amazing really. and that that collaboration i think more than most people i think you collaborated a lot and i, I wondered if that's something over the years that you've sought to do or if it's been things that have just been thrust upon you because you're easy to work with or um well i always like working with other people because i think other people's ideas are invariably better than mine or if i do present an idea their treatment of it improves it mm. uh, and it's a bit like if you write a piece of music for something specific and someone uses it for something else it sort of gives it a new life yeah. and that's always very it just you just feel like oh that feels good because i never intended it to be like that and i never saw it like that and now i'm seeing it in a new light it's a bit akin to when you hear whatever you know, the first time you ever hear a piece of music played on the radio or you happen to be walking past a shop that it might be coming out of you know there is a little sense of how wonderful it is that music can travel the way it does you know that its point of concept is so tiny in a way you know it's a little bit of electricity in your brain that just suggests this this is a thing you know and recognizing it like being happy recognizing that it's happened uh and then doing whatever it is you do to kind of grab it uh and 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 wrestle with it and get it to the point where it's not an idea anymore it's actually a recording and for that to then travel out from where you create it into the world and find its home in so many different places um it's yeah it sort of led me to believe that, that, that i think song is the finest of all of the art forms uh and even though i work primarily in things that aren't song related i mean there's all songs involved you know like with film and tv or you know like radio and little theater um there's usually songs involved uh but I love the fact that, you know, if you go to an art gallery, you've got to go to an art gallery to actually see the work. You know, if you're going to see a concert, you've got to go somewhere where the concert is happening. You know, if you, if you want to see a film, generally you go to a, a, a cinema. If you want to see a play, you go to a theatre. If you want to experience a song, you know, you can be anywhere. You can be on your own up a mountain if you've got a little recording device and, you know, a playback device. And I love the I love the intimacy of song, and I love the commonality of it, and I love the democracy of it. I love the way that equipment has democratized writing, that people who might not otherwise have had a chance to realize something that's in their head can now do it relatively easily with a little bit of application. 
but I like the commonality of it. You know, I love the hand-me-down aspect of folk music, you know, the way that great melodies have been discovered by non-musicians uh, in the most organic and human way possible. You know, the great traditional folk melodies that people have just somehow chased and discovered that this is the only way that they can be formed, you know, and, and then sung that to someone who sung it to someone else who sung it to someone else, you know, and the great, always the great, I think the greatest melodies are always those, uh, folk music, you know, like instinctive, intuitive, organic, um, unschooled. Well, I guess you're in, in that, in that world, you're passing, you know, your truth or to someone else, aren't you really? And, and writing a song, I think is, for me, well, not that I write songs, but when I hear great songs, I think they've achieved in distilling some kind of essential truth into something that's very easy to yeah to take. Yeah, in. and I think it's a mistake to claim credit for it. I think as an author, right, and that might just be me, but I do feel that a universality of understanding in songs or in music is 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 in a way nothing to do with the person who has has composed it because. I think if composers are sort of honest with themselves, uh, it would be an odd thing to claim that it is yours and that you have created it. You know, it's like we all sort of search for these things and discover them. It's a bit like saying, I discovered America. You know, it was always there. You know, it wasn't, didn't not exist until you turned up on a boat and set foot on, <laughs> you know, I've named that animal a zebra, you know. Well, it doesn't know it's called a zebra. It's just a zebra. But it's like, now it's a zebra because I've decided it is, you know, to take credit for... It's an odd thing, isn't it? Because, you know, I don't like that possessive kind of credit thing of, like, this is my music. Because it's sort of like it was never yours in the first place and it's almost everyone's as soon as you deliver it, you know. As soon as you unravel it, or ravel it as soon as it's organized and kind of then re-delivered to everyone why do people recognize it why do people why does it have that effect on people why does it land in a certain way uh why can it crush you why can it excite you and why can that happen to so many people sometimes millions of people and the idea that you are one person who has that as a sort of power I think is 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 slightly odd. But do you think that that feeling you have about it not about not being possessive about it? Do you think that is a plus really? Because you're often, well, more often than not, writing for big orchestras. So you are, in a sense, passing it. You've passed it to an orchestrator, who's then passed it to an orchestra, and you're hearing it back in a way that, however detailed your imagination might be, it's never going to be exactly no. that, at that second. No, no, I, I've come to terms with that fairly early on, that, you know, when you're working in a collaborative form, which film definitely is, orchestral performance definitely is, if only it was me and a guitar and a piano, then that would be the only way of actually being pure about it. Because as soon as you get anyone else involved, they're going to have something to say about it. Even if it's the nuance with which they play the first note, you know, that's going to be their decision, you know, and you can say as much as you like, you know, we've seen these like great films of, 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 of Leonard Bernstein trying to, you know, trying to get great artists to, 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 you know, be within the, the constraints of what he thinks it should be. Yes. Uh, 
and in a way that's only ever realizing one person but you 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 kind of stop you you don't allow people to i always think like sometimes make it better or at least give them the chance to and hear it and think of it as a different way you know the idea that you know your music so intently and intensely that it cannot be altered or bettered improved in any way I think it's I think it's ridiculous because I think it can always you know I mean a performance a great piece of writing with an incredible performance by someone is going to make it a better piece of music because what is music what is music we know that written down music isn't music that's just instructions right it's like a map if you look at a piece of music it's not music uh when people play it the performance of it isn't necessarily music that's like the construction of the music you know that's the realization of the of the instructions uh and when you hear it maybe that is you know the combination of what's being played and how you're receiving it is music but it's quite evasive if you if you start thinking about it but the idea that, mu- that the music is what's written down and that's what it is that's illusory isn't it because it isn't it's like a blueprint for the Eiffel Tower isn't the Eiffel Tower. Yes. I, I always think as well that a, even, a, even a bad performance of something has validity because it happened at, at that moment. It was, it, time was still sculpted while it was happening. Yeah. And you were there. And it's, it's still as valid an experience, even if it isn't the one you're yeah, expecting yeah. or you, you wanted. Well, that's why I like... That's why I like you know like the you know the 433 thing right what i love about that is that that's no more or less a piece of music than anything else is it's just with silence that's all <laughs> uh and have you, ever, in, have you ever been to a performance of it by the way i haven't no well so the very first job i ever had was as a as an assistant at the almeida opera festival and one of their previous directors had died and as a memorial to them, they'd found a piano that was completely empty. It was just the grand piano box. And they filled it with flowers, put the lid up, and someone sat at it and played 4 minutes 33. Which, to people who are listening who don't know what that is, it's a John Cage piece that lasts for 4 minutes and 33 and is someone's idea of silence at that moment. Yeah. Well, it's music, but it has no notes in it. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Yeah. It, it is the, the, the great big gap in between. Yeah. And it's it's a, it's a brilliant exercise, but you very rarely get to perform that exercise in as formalised a setting as a concert hall with lots of people who are expecting something. Yeah, you know, you can tell a room of people to shush a bit. Yeah, which is really quite it's quite yeah. difficult yeah. in itself. But that the the formality of a communal experience of the silence, yeah, or, or whatever the noise is going on is is a I quite like the idea of performing that piece and encouraging everyone to talk because <laughs> it's still happening. Yeah. You know, I mean, this, yeah. I, I sometimes, I, I do sometimes like the idea of, you know, not winding people up, but I get a bit angry when, when, you know, the old arguments about modern art, you know, that's not modern art. That's not modern art. That's just a load of squiggles, you know, and it's like, and I always think like, well, at what point, is it art for you? You know, if I draw a straight line, is that art? No. If I draw a circle on the top, is that art? No. If I draw what look like petals around it, 
is that art? Yes, because now it's something. Now I know it looks like something, so that's art. And he goes, well, it's not, is it? I mean, like, the idea of something that is or isn't. And we're getting into sort of huge sort of philosophical arguments here, but I love I, I I the fact that, you know, music is, is so many, so many things, and it's not just about writing notes on a page or playing notes on a page. You know, music is... is, is uh, you know, visual as well. You know, yeah. I think I don't think it's restricted to those things, which seems incredibly pretentious from someone who's written the score for Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just, you know, I mean, there's practical music. There's music for a reason. Music for yeah. you know for a particular experience. Um, it's yeah, it's, it, it is really interesting, but it's all got to come from somewhere, and a lot of the time, it comes from somewhere we have zero control over, and so the idea that you actually have authorship over it yeah. as a claim is a bit odd. It reminds me of the Carl Sagan's little blue dot film. It's basically, it's a close up of planet earth and you just get further and further and further and further away. Yeah. And Carl Sagan is talking about the idea of a creature on a tiny bit of that tiny little planet having dominion over it for a fraction of the time that humans have existed on it is somehow important is like okay there was a great shot tim minchin uh, tweeted something the other day of a cartoon in an australian paper i think of a guy uh getting a, his friend to take a picture of him with uh the moon behind him and he said uh um don't forget to try and make me look insignificant. <laughs> you know, it's like as soon as you look into the sky, yeah, of course, you know, but you need to be thinking that when you're looking down as well as up. Um, I don't know. Philosophy, it depends what time of the day you talk about these things, doesn't it? You know, I think if it's like half past 11 at night and, uh, you know, and you're a few bottles of something down, uh, you know, philosophy is much more interesting. <laughs> Uh, or maybe it's an easy place to go. I don't know, but I don't. I suppose really, I just don't like the possessive credit of like this is mine, you know. Because music, I find it like a lot of the time I've written something and I've heard someone else do something and it sounds very similar. Of course, you know, it's like there's lots of similarities all over the place, but like little waves of the same kind of thing popping up. Mm. Like sometimes with movies, you know, there's three or four movies. Like there's you know a little thing where like there were four exploding volcano in Los Angeles movies. Yes. You know, all at the same time. There were two Jungle Books at the same time. There were three different sort of Sherlock Holmes films yeah. at the same time. This odd coincidence of everyone having the kind of similar-ish idea at the same time. Well, yeah, isn't it about time we uh, did another Sherlock or another? Yeah. Called, you know, yeah. And I think people do go in cycles of thinking things like that, yeah. especially now nowadays. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's when rights become available, you yeah, know, all of, of a sudden it passes into public. Yeah. You know, so I mean, the Sherlock thing was because it ran out, so everyone could could do Sherlock stuff without worrying about the estate. Um, but I think before that, you know, the idea of the uh, you know the, the the Los Angeles volcano movies, yes. you know, there, was a, there was a few of them at the same time, or the you know the, the you know the disaster in space kind of thing, you know, the landing on the moon things, different sorts of films that all happened to be thought of at the same time by a sort of varying yes. sort of group of people. Uh, is interesting that there's a commonality somehow of uh, of being the right thing at the right time you know that sometimes when you make a song and you record something and it feels great and then two years later you listen to it and you go like not anymore you know somehow its potency is dissolved a little bit 
because yeah. of its age and because of what happens in the world and the way people think about things and uh, and then it takes a while for somehow for that to come back again um which is why people are always reconsidering uh styles i suppose of music from from the past you know it's like there's you know 10 years ago there was a massive resurgence of sort of 70s disco now there's a massive resurgence in sort of 80s electronica yeah. um maybe in a few years time we'll go back to early 90s you know you know grunge who knows that's the wonderful david arnold join us again in part two when we'll be talking about collaborations with don black john barry writing bomb schools the olympics and much more besides. Thanks for listening.